welcome to the Multifamily Artist Podcast. I believe there's a rhythm and art in everything that we do. This is my journey about how I went from being a hip hop dancing engineer to a multifamily real estate investor. If you want to learn more about how you can start investing in real estate, stay tuned to learn from multifamily real estate investors and hear how they found their rhythm and created their own sound investments. Uh, what's up, everyone? Welcome to the Multifamily Artist Podcast. I'm your host, Taylor Koo, and this is where the show where I interview multifamily real estate investors and discuss how they found their rhythm and create created their own sound investments. But before I bring in today's guest, I do want to make sure to let you know that this show is brought to you by the In Rhythm Multifamily Group's Facebook group. So in case you're trying to learn a little bit more about some of the conversations that I've, I've had, see some of the meetups that I'm going to, such as the uh, Twin Cities Multifamily Investor Club meetup coming up soon this Tuesday. Oh, I don't even, actually, it's not going to be released in time by then. But if you're just looking for a place to connect with like-minded individuals, go to Facebook, look up In Rhythm Multifamily Group, or go to InRhythmMultifamily.com, get connected, dive into this industry while I'm diving into this industry, take action, get vulnerable, join the group. And now for today's guest, he's been a huge help to me on my journey. And I actually reached out to him after reading a couple articles that he wrote on branding and networking. He is the best-selling author, investor, and entrepreneur building multiple seven and eight figure companies from the ground up. He's the co-founding partner of Invictus Capital, a multifamily acquisition investment firm based in Minneapolis that provides passive investing opportunities to busy professionals seeking to maximize their return on life. As host of the Multifamily Investing Made Simple podcast and author of Passive Investing Made Simple, he is committed to spreading the word that investing doesn't have to be complicated and hard or overwhelming. He believes everybody should have the opportunity to invest better. Coming all the way from Minneapolis, please give a warm welcome to Anthony Vecino. Hey, thanks for having me, Taylor. Hey, real quickly, I just want to know, because I'm, I'm always fascinated with people's nicknames. Has anybody mm. ever called you Taylor Cuckoo Kachoo? No? No, actually, no. But that's my cousin's Instagram handle. Is it? Oh, yeah, nice. That's nice. cool. Well, not Taylor Cuckoo Kachoo, because her name's not <laughs> yeah, Taylor. Yeah, that'd be weird. But it's, yeah, that'd be really weird. <laughs> but her, her Instagram handle is Cuckoo Kachoo. But you would be the first Dude. I'm doing it. I'm doing it, Taylor. Hey, I appreciate you having me. That was a tangent, but I just had to ask. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you for asking. Well, you know, while we're on this, I, I meant to ask too, do people ever call you Antho? I've never gone by Antho. I've gone by Ant for the first like 20 years of my life. My family still calls me Ant. I'm not a Tony. So if you call me Tony, I'm probably just going to walk right past you and ignore you. Because <laughs> like my last name is Vicino and the Italian way to say that is Vicino. And so if I'm Tony Vicino, that's like straight Godfather stuff. And that's, uh, that's a little too mobby for me. Uh, you're not trying to go the mafia, mafia no, round and give off. No. That. I'm trying to mm. distance myself. You know, our family has a rough past with the mafia. So I just want to, you know, get some distance there. No, I'm just kidding. No, I, I thought it was like, I'm, oh, really? <laughs> I didn't know this about you. <laughs> Things get real. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'm in the witness <laughs> protection program. <so. laughs> that's why you're over in the Minneapolis and it, where it's really, really cold. And yeah, mobsters don't go to the snow. <laughs> <laughs> You know, since we are talking about your past, I'm very curious because, you know, from our first conversation that we've had, it sounds like you had a little bit of a journey to get to where you are today. So how, I mean, how did this all, how did this all start? What was the journey into real estate investing uh, look like for you? You know, I tell everybody that it started in college with the realization that I'm a really bad employee. Like I'm, I'm really bad when it comes to working <laughs> for other people. It's, 
you know, you gotta, you gotta know yourself and, and have some self-awareness. And one of the things I'm lucky enough to know is that I'm just, I'm just lazy when it comes to working for other people. I figure out how to get the job done with the minimal amount of work so that I can coast the rest of the time, which is at direct odds with this other part of my personality, which is this drive to pursue and to grow and to challenge myself. And so when I'm in an environment where I'm on one hand trying to figure out the easiest way to coast, but then on the other hand, feeling like I'm not being challenged and growing, there's this internal dissonance. And so coming out of college, I knew that it was never going to work going into corporate environments or working for other people. I knew I had to figure out my own path through this world. And so that kind of led me down a few different paths. And one of those initially straight out of college was, you know, professional rock climbing. And so that gets this glorified title because we put the word professional in front of it. But really all it means is that I spent like 200 days out of the year living in the back of a van, sleeping under the stars or on the side of a cliff. And so like, that sounds really cool because it's all about freedom for me. And it doesn't necessarily put like a lot of money in the bank or anything like that. And mm -hmm. so at a certain point, I started looking forward and saying, okay, what am I going to do with my life once my body starts breaking down? Because it's, you know, if you're an athlete, you can only do that for so long. You can't rely on your body forever. And so you have to have that long-term vision. And for me, it came when a buddy approached me and said, hey, I want to build this business. Do you want to help me do it? And I didn't know anything about building businesses at that point. But I was like, yeah, let's, let's give this a shot. Let's see, let's see what we can do. And we, we started doing that. And I was like, man, this is actually a lot of fun. I, I like putting systems together and seeing what, what you can do with them. And, you know, fast forward to 2017, 2016, and I get bit by the real estate bug. And it's funny because looking back on it, real estate had a couple of points where it intersected my life and I just didn't notice it. And hmm. the first one was in college, we were doing fix and flips with my roommate and his dad at the time. So they would go and buy these single family houses. We would fix them up. And what I learned out of that was I really hate construction, like a lot. <laughs> I do not like working with my hands. I'm not particularly good at it. And so I just walked away from that experience thinking, okay, well, if that's what real estate investing is, I don't want to do that. And then 10 years later, a buddy approaches me and he says, hey, I'm buying these quads. Do you have any interest in doing that? And so my mind had gone back to like the fix and flips days. And I was like, nope, I don't want to do that, but I'll give you money. You go do it. You're great at that. You, you go do that thing. And so we did that. And that was, that was a great relationship, but it wasn't what I considered to be like true real estate investing. It was really me just investing in a buddy's business. Mm -hmm. And then the moment the bug really bit was, you know, there was no light bulb moment. I think we all maybe... I, I wish there was like this really clear moment I could look back on and say, that was when it was, but I don't really have that moment. But what I tell people, because we have to have a story, what I tell people <laughs> happened was that I was driving into downtown Minneapolis, looking up at the skyline and was struck with the question, what's it take to buy a skyscraper? And that I don't know if I have no interest in actually buying a skyscraper, but trying to answer that question led me down the, the rabbit hole of figuring out like, who owns all these buildings around us? You know, when you drive into work or you drive into school, like you see all these apartment buildings around you and you never really stop to ask yourself who owns that. And you might just assume like a big institution, a big company, or like uh, some really wealthy people own it. And that's really not the case. You know, like once I started digging into it, I was like, Hey, you know what? Normal people, people just like me and you, like they own these things. And that became really interesting then because once you start understanding the pieces of real estate and how they click together, 
the sky's the limit. You can build anything. And it's relatively simple, which is our whole thesis at Invictus and our podcast, Multifamily Investing Made Simple. It's all about, this is actually really easy. Well, not easy. It's not easy. I'm sorry. It's simple. <laughs> There's a difference between easy and simple. This is not easy. I don't want anybody to get this in their head that this is like a get rich quick or easy scheme because real estate is, in my estimation, the best get rich slowly but surely plan that there is out there if mm -hmm. you're willing to be diligent and put in the hard work and put in it over a really long period of time. It sounds like it, it sounds like it was just quite the the journey of just like figuring out what you like and what you don't like. Like you didn't like construction. And so then you there's it, I, I love the fact that you just kept following just that curiosity. So you you had this idea where you wanted to you wanted to figure out how to buy, like let's say the, for example, like the skyscraper, right? What was your next steps in doing so? Did you did you go out and just try and get educated? Did you just like post on Facebook like, hey, how do I buy a skyscraper? <laughs> and then people just uh, comments on your posts. What what was that like? I went to Wikipedia and I Google. I was like, no, I, I mean, actually, I, meant it. I probably did, but in 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 the same way that um, you break down any really big audacious goal or question, you start with the end state in mind, and then you work backwards to where you are. And step one is recognizing where are you in your journey. And for me, at that point, it was I was a complete idiot. I didn't know anything about real estate investing, so I needed to put in the reps and understand. Like I needed to educate myself, and so that started with podcasts. It started with books. It started with you know YouTube videos, just consuming the content so that I had the the lingo, that I understood the language of what it was I was looking at. From there, it was then going to networking events, meeting people, and starting to have these conversations because it's one thing to read how to do a push-up in a book, but until you actually go and start doing push-ups, like it, it doesn't do you any good. And what what happens a lot of times, especially if we want to stick with like the, the working out analogy is I can read a book on how to do a deadlift and I can go and do a deadlift. But if I don't have like a personal trainer to sit there and work with me, then I might hurt myself. And so I find it really helpful to like go into the gym and be around the other people that are doing the things so that you can ask them questions like, hey, how did you do this? And so the networking events, going to Facebook groups, going to meetups, like these are all really valuable ways of getting that, that information because people they can help you make connections that you don't even know how to, to put together yet. You're just, you don't know what questions to ask. And so they can help guide you through that. But there comes a point then when you need to start taking action. This is a really murky boundary. It's not like this clearly delineated line in the sand that says, hey, educate until you get to this level of proficiency and then step over and start taking action. And so you have to really understand where you're at and when you've, you've studied and educated enough and you're ready to take that action. But that is... If you never take that step, you're never going to get to the end state. So for me, it was a lot of education, probably six months to a full year of like really diving in and understanding before I ever pulled the trigger on my first investment property that I was actively managing myself. And I think that's probably a fair trajectory for most people is spend six months to a year just educating yourself. Mm -hmm. And by the end of that, you probably have enough knowledge to go and start implementing it. So you mentioned your first property, then let's, I'd love to dive into that first property. So how many units was it? How did, uh, what did that look like? So the first one was, I, you know, I like to start simple and take just a single step outside my comfort zone whenever I'm getting into a new project. I don't try to go 10X and go crazy big. I want to know that, you know, I'm, if I fail, it's a micro failure. And I'm really big about micro failures leading to macro successes. So the first thing that I bought was a little triplex and I bought it with an FHA. So I only put in maybe $7,000 and it was cash flowing from day one. It was a great property. 
And really the goal of it was just to learn the systems and the processes. How do you operate this little business? Because that's at the end of the day what these things are, just little businesses. And once I understood that, once I understood how to work with tenants and understood how to work with the city, then I started thinking about now how do I scale from here? Because I knew I was never going to stay at that size, like triplexes and small residential properties. There's a lot of reasons I'm not a fan of it, but I knew that was the place to start that would serve as the launching pad for what came next. And, and where was this, where was this triplex? Where was, was this triplex? Saint, yeah, St. Paul, Minnesota. So, ah. you know, for a lot of people, when you're looking at like, when you're getting started, like, where do you want to invest? And if you're in a market, like, you know, you're in San Francisco. I lived in San Francisco um, for a while and had, I have a couple properties, but that was only because we bought at a particular moment in the market cycle in 2014, when, you know, that was a good time mm -hmm. and you could do that. Like now it's right. really, really difficult to find those opportunities. And so if, you're in that market, you might need to look external, you might need to look remotely investing. But for us, we're really fortunate being here in the Twin Cities. Like it's actually a fantastic market to invest in. And so I just went to my backyard and said, okay, let's find a deal here that works. I love that. I mean, yeah, the, the barrier to entry over here in, over in San Francisco and Oakland is a, is a, is a little bit harder harder to, to, and it, to, you know, it kind of depends honest. on what you want. Like <laughs> yeah. it, it's, it's a highly appreciating market. So if you're okay, like buying some, you know, if you're, if you're okay with buying like a duplex for 2 million and then trusting that in, you know, 10 years or 15 years, it's going to be worth more cool, but it's not going to cash flow. And mm -hmm. so it's kind of, you know, understanding what's your objective and what are you trying to, what are you trying to achieve? So you can invest in any market and make money, but you have to have the right game plan to apply towards it. Dan, do you still own the, the properties over, over in uh, San Francisco or Oakland? Yep. Yeah, we still have them. Oh, nice. Okay, cool. Yeah, we'll hold them until we die. <laughs> awesome. Now, when, so when you took that step from, let's say, those, like these small triplexes and then went over to larger multifamily acquisitions, was at any point, was it scary? Like, what was, what, what was that feeling like? Did you feel that you since you had some of this experience that you could just leverage this and, and go more towards these large acquisitions or was it a completely different game than, than what you expected? That's a fantastic question. I think fear is a really interesting topic, especially where it comes to investing or entrepreneurship. You know, one of the things I used to, I used to coach children in rock climbing, like competitive rock climbing athletes. And one of the things we talk about, cause climbing is an activity that's ripe with fear because you're on, you're high up in the air and that's not a natural place for humans to want to spend their time. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we talk about was not, not trying to suppress the fear, but trying to use it as an opportunity to practice courage because courage is a muscle and it's something that you control. The more times that you express courage and you manifest it, then the bigger that muscle becomes. So in the future, your, your comfort zone of things that scare you is smaller. And so for me, I think I just spent a lot of my life flexing that courage muscle and, you know, whether it was snowboarding or rock climbing, like these activities that really force you to go outside your comfort zone. So I never felt fear per se. I felt apprehension, you know, and I felt anxiety. And those are natural things that you're going to feel when you step outside your comfort zone. But I don't know if it was ever fear per se. And part of that then is also, I, I, had, a, I had an upbringing where my dad instilled in me that I, that I could solve any problem if I just looked at it from enough angles and applied enough diligence. And so I've always had this, this sense of like, okay, worst case scenario, we'll figure this out. And so fear never really played into it until we started 
you know, partnering with passive investors and we started taking people's money, their, you know, their retirement funds, and they started trusting us to, to go out there and do right by this. That then becomes a little scary because now it's not just your own skin in the game. Now you have other people's skin riding on you. And if you don't feel a little bit of fear when you're taking other people's money, then I think you're probably psychopath. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're maybe a little dead inside. Like you're not really giving it the true gravitas that it deserves. And so I think mm. fear is totally natural, but at the end of the day, like when you feel that fear, that's an opportunity to practice courage, not just reckless stupidity. Cause there's a difference, <laughs> right? Like, like there's, there's, a, there's a big difference, but um, that's, that's kind of how I've, I've always looked at it is whenever you feel that like kind of niggle of like, am I ready for this? That's, that's your mind trying to keep you back into your comfort zone. And growth doesn't happen there. And so whenever you feel fear, that's usually a good sign that that's something you need to step into and move towards. And so that's, that's been kind of my guiding light. And it took a while for us to get to the point of being comfortable taking people's money. Because for me, you know, a number of years ago, I've had a lot of business success and I've been really fortunate in that way, but I've also had a lot of business failures. And one of the biggest business failures that I've had was it wasn't even one of my own businesses. It was actually, I had some friends who had started this business a number of years ago and they had come to me and they said, Hey, can you help us? It's not doing well. And I came on board with this idea, like, yes, I can turn this around. I'm the golden boy. Everything I touch, you know, is golden and I've never failed to build a successful business. And I absolutely failed. And like two years after taking the reins, I had to shut the operation down because it just didn't work. Oof. And so like, it's, it's a really humbling experience, not just when you fail, but when you fail and it costs people that are close to you, their dream. Right. And, and that I've carried with me as kind of not a chip on my shoulder, but like a, a hyper realization in the back of my mind, when it comes to taking people's money is that it's the same thing. Like you are now entrusted with somebody's dream because money is just an exchange of goods and services for your time. And so you've put in your time, you've earned this money that you can then cash in at a later date for some whatever. But really at its core, the money is just a reflection of the time that you put in and you can't get that back. So when somebody gives you their retirement money or they give you some, you know, whatever, that's not something that they get back. And I think if you treat it with that appropriate gravitas, then, you know, you're, you're going to feel fear. <laughs> Yeah, I, f I feel fear just like listening to, to your story and, and just how you paint that picture. Uh, Ned, did you ever have like this method in dealing with fear? Like, you know, before, yeah, I was going to say it, it's been going like in and out and you're on a roll. Uh, so my camera's got its own little mind. So sometimes it comes in and out of focus. Oh, yeah. So if you guys are watching this on YouTube, I don't know if you're going to be putting this video out there. Um, I'm part Yeti. So sometimes I get blurry, but that's just because <laughs> Yetis are naturally blurry. <laughs> See, I want to make the Instagram clip and it's just going to be like blurry and people are just going to think so. it's, <laughs> people it's are mysterious. Think it's, <laughs> yeah, who's exactly. Our, who's the guest today? Yeah. Oh, it's just Anthony. <laughs> ah, um, no, but I, I was going to ask, like, it, it, it sounds like you've just been doing this for a really long time and continue to practice this. And I know that certain people have certain methods, like, for example, like when it comes to like even approaching a girl and they're like very afraid, like some people might count to three and then just do it. And if, mm. if they don't count to three or they, they go past it, then they're never going to do it. Did you ever have a method like that going into um, any of these business ventures or real estate ventures? Yeah. So the first thing that you need to do is you need to deconstruct the worst case scenarios. You need to sit down and like really let yourself fixate on what all could go wrong. 
mm. and really work through, like take out a notepad and just write them down and say, okay, well, if this happens, then this happens and this happens, get them out there. Like, don't just let the fears lurk in the dark because that's where they're the scariest. If you ever watch a scary movie, you'll notice that the scariest parts of the movie are before you've ever seen the monster and really skilled filmmakers know this. And so they'll only ever show you like little glimpses or they'll show it with bad lighting and like really briefly. And so the whole time you're building up this, this anticipation of what it's going to really look like. And then when you finally see it, it's like, Oh yeah, that's scary. But then you become desensitized to it. You know, it's not as scary as the idea of the thing was. And so what we need to do is we need to first bring the monster into the light so we can see it. And once we have those fears like written down, we can see them. Now it's time to start like going through the thought experiment of what if, like, what if this does happen, then what would I do? And you create your contingency plans and you say, okay, if this happened, then I would do this. And then if this happened as a response, I would do that. And just by doing this, you start to work through and realize like this thing that you thought might be the worst case scenario actually, in fact, might not be that bad at all. Like you, you might have a plan to get through it, or you might be able to pivot and actually make it a good thing. And so that's the, that's the scenario. Take it out of the darkness, take these fears out of the darkness, address them, create a plan. And worst case scenario, there is nothing that you can do about it. It's just going to suck, but you're mentally prepared for that. And mm. a lot of risk is just about accepting the risk and then moving forward or not moving forward. If you decide to move forward in full acknowledgement of all the risks in front of you, and you have a game plan for 99% of those risks and you acknowledge and accept that, then you're ready to go. If you don't acknowledge and accept all those risks, then you're not ready to go. And mm -hmm. so that's, that's at the end of the day, once you ac accept it, you have control. And from that moment on, it's, you know, you just pull the trigger, you go up to the girl and you ask her out. It's the, you now you're no longer fixating on external circumstances. Now you need to focus on what you can do in mm -hmm. those circumstances. Like where's your skill? What's, what's in your quadrant or sphere of influence and focus exclusively on that. Because once you've done all the mental calculations of what could go wrong, it's time to let it go and focus on executing the game plan. And if you're, if part of your mind is still sitting back there thinking about what could go wrong, then you're not living presently in the moment, focus on what you can be doing. And so you're living with a bifurcated focus and that's not going to get you to the solution that you wanted. So now taking that back into, into real estate, what are the biggest risks that you saw when you went from smaller to these larger acquisitions? What were the, some of the, yeah, the, the risks that you saw? Well, there's so many. As you get bigger, the, the consequences of mistakes become much larger. That's, that's, a, that's a really obvious one. Like there's just more money at stake. There's more people. And where people are involved, there's usually a lot of risk because you don't know who's going to be the crazy person who tries to sue you or who doesn't pay their bills. Like these are all things that you know going in. One of the big risks, though, I think that people don't give proper weight to, at least initially, especially when they're still doing all the work themselves, is really thinking through how much time and energy it's going to take from you because that's a big risk. Like if you are working a job and you're also trying to manage this portfolio, there's a risk there that the two could bleed into each other and take away from one another. And so maybe now like you are at work every day and you're getting phone calls from tenants that have freezing pipes and you need to go over there and deal with that, but you can't leave your job. Otherwise you're going to get fired. There's risk there. Right. And yeah. so like really, especially in the early days, you need to be considering like, what are the consequences of the opportunity cost of doing one thing versus doing the other thing? Because all the other risks of, you know, like there's money involved and the building could burn down and somebody could slip on the ice and sue you. Like these are all risks 
that we all know about and mm-hmm. you can mitigate to some degree. But usually the big risks are the things that they, they kind of come out of nowhere that you just didn't see. And then you just have to kind of live with them in the moment and solve them to the best of your ability. Okay. And, you know, I'm curious then, how, you know, with, with evaluating these certain risks it, and you, you touched on what's the way I'm trying to say it. You touched on whether you wanted to like what you want to spend your time on and what you're willing to risk. Right. So how come you didn't go towards the passive investing route or did you go with the passive investing route first before you went on the active side? Yeah, that's interesting. You know, technically, I guess I was on the passive side. If you think about those first couple of properties in San Francisco, mm-hmm. but I never really thought about it that way. Like mm-hmm. it wasn't an intentional decision. When I started what I consider like my active real estate investing career, um, really, it really began with that triplex. And I, I never really thought about being passive because for me, it's not about the money. That's not what's interesting about what I do. Like mm-hmm. financial freedom isn't at the core of why I pursue real estate. At the end of the day, it's because I really like building businesses. I like building systems and I like having impact. And at the end of the day, there's very few industries. I think that you can have more impact than in multifamily real estate. Cause if you think about like how many people that you get to serve, whether that's your residents and the, their families or your employees or your investors, like these are, there's so many different touch points of people that you can positively impact. And so, you know, going passive was never, it never really entered my mind because that's not the thing that I found interesting about mm-hmm. real estate or building businesses in general. Okay. And so then you went on the active side and then uh, you found your, your partner, Dan Kruger. Great guy. Shout out to Dan. Yeah, now, he's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> you two are the, the most fit real estate investors that I've seen out there. Just, although- you know, that's, that's actually, that'd be an interesting competition to, to set up. Like who are the fittest, who's the fittest uh, real estate partnership? Yeah. <laughs> Cause I, I was supposed to see uh, Josh Rusin too. He's like, he's all buff. He's, he's buff too. Yeah. So you guys might have competition there. So, so you met, you met Dan, how did you meet him? Dan and I met at a networking event and Mm, okay. You know, for me, I am severely introverted and it might not seem like that because, you know, you hear me on a podcast and you think, Oh, that guy can speak and he knows words. And it's like, it doesn't seem like he's afraid of people, but I'm terrified of people. And when I first started real estate investing, like I struggled at meetup events and conferences and I still do. Like I feel a lot of stress and anxiety. So we talk about fear. That's one of the things that I really fear is like going into unknown environments with people I don't know. It's like a huge fear. And so quite often I'd go to meetup events. I'd drive all the way across town, get to the meetup event, sit in the parking lot, and then just decide to go home before everyone went in. Didn't even talk to anybody. Didn't uh, do anything. Like, really? So like, I really, yeah, I really struggled a lot. Wow. And so going into that conference, that particular event where I met Dan, I went into it and I just said, okay, I just need to go in there and meet one person. It was a three-day event. I was like, I got three days. I just got to meet one person. That's it. And so I go in and it's this big conference, this big ballroom all these tables and there's people sitting at every single table except for one over in the back corner. And so which table do I go to the table with all the peoples or the one table? (laughs) I go to the one table all by myself and I'm sitting there all by myself and I'm like, Hey, you know what? I made it in the building. That's win number one. And then Dan just comes in the room and he looks around and he sees the table with one guy at it. And he's also very introverted. So he's like, well, that seems safe. So he came and sat next to me. (laughs) And we struck up a conversation and we share a lot of things in common, like a lot of things. And so we went to get lunch and we were just hanging out. And at that point, like we weren't looking for a partnership. 
Like I just went to that meetup event just to meet one person. That was the only thing. Like mm -hmm. I was like, okay, one step outside the comfort zone. That was it. But after about four months of like just regularly hanging out and trying to find ways to add value to one another's lives, we realized, hey, there's a lot of synergy here. Our skill sets are very nicely complementary. What I'm good at uh, is stuff that he's not necessarily good at and vice versa. Like what he's great at is like, I'm not that great at. And so we looked at it and said, hey, why don't we do this, this deal together that we have on the table? And we did that and it's been smooth sailing ever since. And I mean, I think partnerships are a tricky thing. You get questions all the time like, what do you look for in a good partner? Or how do you go find a good partner? And it's a lot like going into a bar and trying to find a girlfriend and just walking up to people and saying, Hey, do you want to be my girlfriend? Like that doesn't work. And so there's a little bit of like, if you go looking for it too hard, you're gonna have a hard time finding it. Mm. Well, but there's also this aspect of like, if you're not looking for it, then you're not going to find it. And so I think the best thing that you can do is first work on yourself, make yourself a desirable partner for other people to want to work with. So work on your skills, work on your presentation and what you bring to the table. And then you're going to attract quality partners. If you just go out there and are asking people, Hey, will you mentor me? Or will you be my partner? Like it's probably not going to work. And I think it was Rumi, the, the, you know, the old poet, I think he has a, his line is something like that, which you seek is also seeking you. And another way of putting that is when the student is ready, the teacher appears and you could put, apply this to partnerships. When the partner is ready, the partner appears and just work on yourself first make yourself worthy of a good partner. And then the universe has a way of just kind of like putting it in front of you. I love that. And I love how it organically created this partnership too. Cause, and, and I love that example that you brought in where you, you go to a bar and you just ask a bunch of girls like, Hey, can I be a, can you be my, my girlfriend? Cause it doesn't work like that. Cause it, when I first, uh, well, I mean, I, you tried I this, didn't you? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I, I just definitely tried it. That's I mean, actually, we've all been there. <laughs> that's actually how I got my first girlfriend, uh, my girlfriend right now. Oh, it did work. I'll dig. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> absolutely works. <laughs> I mean, it's, so, yeah, sometimes it's the, the exception that proves the rule, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But, uh, you know, when because when I was diving into this industry, I, a lot of what people were saying was like, oh, you just need to make sure you need to add value, add value, find somebody that complements what you're lacking. And I always thought that was like the first question that people would come up with. It's just like, hey, what are you good at? What I'm good at this. All right, let's team up. But it sounded like y'all just became friends first and, and sort of just like trying to understand each other on a personal level and building that trust. And, and so just that organic relationship is something that I look up to mm -hmm. um, and, and partners that, you know, I want to eventually have. Right? It, it's, it's funny on that value add aspect. Let's touch on this because I think it's a really important one. Like we hear all the time, add mm -hmm. value, add value, add value. And that's true. The people who really stand out and go far in life and business or whatever, they come from a position of always adding value to the people around them. Mm -hmm. But it's very, very difficult to ask somebody, how can I add value to you? Let's think about this. When was the last time that you really like went up to somebody and said, hey, how can I add some value to your life? Like yesterday. <laughs> in, in, yeah. Like in the real estate in, in industry, we have this tendency to always end every conversation that way. Like, Oh, Hey Taylor, this was a really great conversation. How can I add some value to your life? Is there anything I can help you out with? And 90% of the time, the person across from you just kind of looks at you and goes, yeah, I can't think of anything right now, but yeah, I'll let you know. Like, yeah. And likewise, is there anything I can do to add some value to your life? And both of you just walk away kind of being like, I tried to add value, but I couldn't find the end. And the problem is that we're not thinking in those terms. Like I'm not going out into the world thinking, 
how can people add value to me? And so I don't have like a ready-made thing to throw out in front of you. Like when you say, how can I add value to you? I'm like, I, I don't know. That's your job to figure out how to add value to me. That's the key is mm-hmm. how to add value without me having to do the work of telling you how to add value for me, right? And if you can do that and you can do it from a position without expectation and not flaunting and say, hey, look, I added some value to you. Now <laughs> it's time to you know, work together. Like that's, that's like buying a woman a drink and then being like, I bought you a drink. Like it, again, like it doesn't work like that. Yeah. And so your job, if you really want to add value to people's life is to not just ask them that, but to really sit back, look at it from their position, do some research and figure out, where might the the intersection be where I could add some value? That's, it's funny. I did that for Dan. Like this is, this is a perfect case in point. I'm just thinking about, I don't know if I've ever actually told this story, but when Dan and I, like we left that networking event, we hung out a couple of times. And then like two months later, I was looking at his website and I was like, this is a really garbage website. Like no offense, Dan, but your website sucked. No, he knows that. And so I just (laughs) built him a new website. I didn't even tell him I was going to do it. I just built it for him. And then uh-huh. I shot it over to him and I said, Hey, don't know if you, if you, if this works for you, if you care, but like your other website had some issues. So I, I spruced it up and he was like, Oh, that's, that's fantastic. And so like, I just, I recognized that he had a need it intersected with a skill set that I had that was easy for me to do. And so I did it for him. And that was like, you know, from that point on, his soul is indentured to me because no, I'm just kidding. Uh, we do joke about that sometimes, but, um, but it's, it's like, it's your job. If you really want to stand out, find the way to add the value without having to ask that person, because honestly, we're all really busy people. We have so many yeah. things on our plate. Like I don't have time to think about some tasks to throw in front of you to help me out. Like I'm probably just two heads down working on the things in front of me. No, that just like got me speechless. <laughs> just just to, just to think about the the process and how those conversations were, and then I was also just reflecting on some of the conversations that I've had too with just like people. And I've definitely asked the question like, "Oh, how can I add value? How can I add value? Or is there anything I can do with uh, for you?" Oh, I do it constantly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but I never get a helpful answer. Nobody's ever looked at me and like, "Can you build me a website?" <laughs> right. I could do it like in, a, in in an afternoon. Nobody's ever asked. Right. Like. And it's not something that they're probably going to ask. And, and and that's the thing to recognize is like, it's, it's like when you start a conversation and you're like, Hey, what's up? Or how are you doing today, Taylor? Yeah. If I'm just walking by you on the street and I'm like, how are you doing? Yeah. And good. You're good. like, okay, we had a conversation, but what really was accomplished there today? But if I stop you and I'm like, Hey, Taylor, what's been the best part of your day so far? Or, Hey Taylor, what'd you have for breakfast? And now you're like, hey, what? <laughs> or like, Hey Taylor, I know from our past conversations, you're an oatmeal dude. I just had this bomb oatmeal. You have to check it out. I'm going to send you a box of this oatmeal so that you can try it. You're going to be like, oh, heck yeah. Anthony Anthony knows I'm all about the oatmeal. So people at home, if you're listening to this, just recognize Taylor really loves oatmeal. If you want to add value to his life, get <laughs> Give me all the oatmeal, please. I, I think I'm, make, I'm making all that up. Especially, especially the unflavored ones. The the, the dry water. yeah yeah there's yeah. the dry ones oh man you're a masochist yeah <laughs> no i actually don't really like oatmeal at all no, <laughs> no, no. no, no, no. But, <laughs> but going off that example like you know i i see where you know you're really investing in the, in somebody in their interests and then really just trying to see where without even like letting them know where you can add that value and yeah it's uh, it's quality over quantity yeah. Right. Like mm. go deep with your relationships and find ways that make that relationship blossom beyond just a, a casual conversation on LinkedIn or an in passing DM on Facebook. Like that's all fine and dandy, 
like go like somebody's post. But at the end of the day, like you got to find ways to stand out in people's mind. And I give you props because this is something that you've done well, where for Dan and I is like how, you know, trying to find that intersection of where can we add value to one another's lives and deepening that relationship beyond just pure transaction, but actually like saying, Hey, like, you know, I, I, I find you to be a really interesting person and we've had good conversations and I'm invested in seeing you succeed now. So now I'm seeking out ways to add value to your life. Cause I'm like, I want to see you succeed. And it takes time to get to that place. And I, I give you props and kudos for having like the authenticity and also like the, the intentionality to actually make progress. And I think you, you do that very well. Thank you. I appreciate that. I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> I'm speechless now. Thank you. Clip it. Put it on social yeah, media. Clip. <laughs> That's on my reel. On my highlight reel. Yeah. No, thank you. Um, I only give out one compliment per week, by the way. So there you go. One compliment per episode. Per episode. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I appreciate it. And thank you. And, and you know, just seeing. And hey, guys, real quick. I'm sorry. I totally cut you off there. Yeah. And no, I wanted. Ahead. I want to point this out. Like acknowledging people and like what they're good at is a way of adding value to their life because we're really bad sometimes about looking at ourselves and saying like objectively, what am I good at? I don't know. But if I look at you and I'm like, Hey Taylor, you're really good at connecting with people. You're like, Hey, I hadn't really even thought about that. I kind of thought I sucked at it, but you're right. I guess I kind of am cool. That's awesome. Or like, Hey, you're a really good designer. Like I saw that design that you put out the other day. Like that was rad. Or like, you're really good when you're talking on this podcast, like acknowledging somebody and in an authentic, legitimate way is a great way of adding value. Thank you. Wow. Yeah, no, I just, yeah. Hmm. I'm like speechless. I've never, I, I wasn't expecting where this, where this conversation was like, where it was going to be going, you know, I mean, and this is, this is also the, like one of the reasons why I reached out to, to you and Dan too, is just because of how authentic you guys were. And I see what you were doing and, and how you really wanted to create these passive opportunities for like simple people that, that weren't rich and and just really wanted to get into the game and how down to earth y'all were. And y'all weren't just flaunting like, Hey, I got my Ferrari. I got this and that. Like both of you have just, a my Lambo does not handle well in the snow. <laughs> let me just tell you. <laughs> it doesn't have uh, all four, all four wheel drive. <laughs> no, no. And when you're driving around in like six inches of or like 12 inches of snow, like the clearance on that thing is just horrible. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I love this, what you said, and when it's, especially when it comes to now and just acknowledging other people's um, strengths and, and really just lifting other people up. Cause also too, when I was jumping into this industry as well, it just seemed very competitive that everybody just wanted you to become a passive investor in their deal just so they can close in. Then they kind of pitch you like, Hey, you know, you can learn from learn this way. And in reality, how many conversations do you really have and how involved are you really into mm -hmm. the deal? Uh, so now that brings me to my next question. So you have, you built this relationship with Dan. Now, do you ever build these relationships with all of your passive investors as well? Or most of these people that you've, that you've come across with beforehand? What did that look like? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, when we first started, we, we, our natural progression wasn't just jumping from using our own money to using passive investors money. We did a bunch of joint ventures. And so using friends and family, and like that first circle around us of investors. And so once we made that transition to using passive investors that maybe bring in people that we didn't have a prior existing relationship with, and we had to kind of cultivate that and grow it, you know, now it's, it's kind of changed a little bit. So I'd say 50% of our investors are very close and we know them very, very well. 
Mm-hmm. The other 50% are coming in through one of our maybe educational or thought leadership channels. So they listen to the podcast and they're like, hey, these guys don't sound like idiots. Let's see what they're all about. And so they come in through that channel. And one of our goals, regardless of how many episodes of our podcast they've listened to or how familiar they are with us is like, we want to know them. We want to know what their goals, their objectives, what their dreams are for their life, because that helps us make sure that we're serving them in the way that they need to be served. Because not all of our passive investors, even though they might be all in the same deal, they don't all want the same thing necessarily. Mm. And for us, we can deliver exceptional service to them when we understand that and tailor our our services to them. Yeah, Taylor. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and but that takes time. That's the thing is like relationships take time. You it's hard to scale a business when you're scaling relationships one at a time. And that's the thing that a lot of people try to short short change because there's no way of quickly doing it. And so what you're talking about there is like there I would say in general the real estate community is fantastic in that it's not super competitive. It's more collaborative in that, hey, you might be a partner on a future deal. Maybe not this deal, but in the future, we might work together. And so I want to keep that relationship open. I don't want to burn that bridge. But there are a lot of people that haven't really gotten the message and they look at people and they just see a dollar sign or they see a transaction. And it's like, I need to close you. I want you to be an LP in my deal so that I have your money and then I'm going to move on to the next person. And all you are is a number. And Dan and I talk about this all the time is like, regardless of who you work with, if you're a potential passive investor, you need to know, like, and trust the person on the other side of the table and, and trust that they have your best interest in mind and that they're not just treating you like a transaction. Nobody wants to be treated like a transaction. It's why, you know, we choose to go to like boutique shopping experiences or restaurants rather than going to McDonald's or Burger King. Like when you're, when you look at your significant other and you're like, Hey, let's go out for a special night. You don't go to a fast food restaurant because you're just treated like a transaction. You go somewhere where they treat you and you make you feel special. Right. And that Hmm. when you're, when you're dealing with something as important as your money and you're investing in your retirement, you should be, you should feel special. At the end of the day, you should be working with people who you go, I like working with those guys. I, I get the sense that these people think about me as more than just a number. They think of me as a person. They remember, you know, my, that I have these children and that they like hockey and dance and that they're this age and they know their names and they, they have a sense for like what it is my life is about and why I'm doing what I'm doing. I'm like just, just registering it. Cause you know, sometimes I, I, I just like always like when you're speaking it, it almost just like makes me just like also reflect too, just about like some of the relationships that I've had and, and where those interests align. And I didn't even think about just the, the feeling that we get when we, you know, go to restaurants. And then also that feeling can be in parallel to when we are investing. And, you know, I think that's something that y'all do very well is getting to know the person, making sure that their interests are aligned with, your vision as well, because I think also, and I agree at the end of the days, it would, it would suck to have a person where your interests don't align. And then it, it can create a very stressful five, seven years or, or however long the transaction could be. Yeah. Um, so nobody wants, nobody wants stress. Nobody's yeah, got time for stress. No, 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 no. I don't like stress. I don't want stress. So now, you know, you found your partner, you have some passive investors, you've done some deals. Now, what are your main focuses on moving forward from here? I know I touched a little bit in, in the bio, but I'd love to just hear from you. 
Yeah, so our uh, 2021 plan is really three-pronged. Like one is on the acquisition side. We want to keep growing our portfolio mm-hmm. and keep growing because it allows us to continue impacting more and more people. And so we don't think about our growth strategy in terms of units or you know assets under management and a dollar amount. We think about it in terms of family served, like how many families can we serve this year? And then tangential to that is growth just for the sake of growth can be really dangerous if you're not ready for it. And so we have a lot of focus on the operations side and saying, how do we build this company in a way that is focused on long-term success and creating an environment for our employees in particular so that they wake up every day excited to get out of bed and go to work, whether they're, you know, property managers and they're doing leasing and they're helping put families into, into a home, or they're just, you know, doing the landscaping and they're helping, you know, make somebody's home beautiful so that when they get home from a long day of work, they're excited to come home. Like we want to create an environment where our employees, they're excited when they go to work because what they do has impact and value and meaning. And then the third part of our attack is our thought leadership program and thought leadership. It's just a way of like bucketing this idea that really at the end of the day, one of the most impactful activities we can do is educating other people on what we do, whether they come and they work with us is irrelevant to us. We don't care if you're hearing this message and decide, I want to work with Anthony and Dan. What we want you to walk away with is, Hey, I want to do this. I want to invest in real estate and I want you to feel that you can do it. I want to have, I want you to feel that it's within your capacity and that you have the tools to succeed. And if that's all you get out of it, then that's perfect. I don't care if you come and work with me. If you do, that's great. But I want more people to understand that their lives can be so much more than what it currently is. If you're not satisfied and happy with what you're doing, if you wake up and you're not excited to go about your life, or if you you really do love your W-2 maybe, but you're stressed out because you don't know, you know what you're going to be doing for retirement, or you only have one single stream of income and you're like, how do I diversify that? Like money is a huge stressor. And I don't like stress unless I choose to stress. I'm all about putting myself into stressful environments on the side of a cliff, but I choose that stress. I don't want to be stressed out about things like money or health. Like I want to have control over these things and know that they are handled. And so that's what we're doing. Working on the acquisitions, working on the operations and working on the thought leadership education program. Now I want to touch on acquisitions just a little bit because I, you were talking about the Twin Cities uh, to me, and I didn't even think about investing over in the Twin Cities, but in reality, it's actually a really strong market that I feel like everybody mm-hmm. sleeps on. And the more you you started talking to me and the more I started paying more attention, it's right behind a lot of these other popular places, uh, such as like Austin, right behind it in, in those lists. Isn't it's, that crazy? <laughs> yeah, which is which is absolutely nuts. Yeah, I would love if you can just touch on I mean, why, why Minneapolis? Why St. Paul? It's crazy to me that so few investors are aware of what's going on up here in the Twin Cities. But once you start paying attention, like you're saying, to like the different reports and the different metrics that a lot of people use to gauge what would make a good market, you start to look and realize, oh, wow, the Twin Cities has a lot going for it. So we can, we can zoom way, way out and look at it from a macroeconomic standpoint. First of all, we have more Fortune 500 companies per capita than any other major city in the country. So we have over 15 Fortune 500 companies diversified across pretty much every industry you can imagine. We have Best Buy, Target, 3M, General Mills, like you name it, we've got it up here. You then look and say, okay, 
their education system and their healthcare system. What we got there? Well, we have Mayo Clinic, which is, I don't know, the number one health care <laughs> provider in the country. So that's cool. And then we have the University of Minnesota, which, you know, maybe you don't think about as being like a big deal, but it's like the third largest school in terms of population, which people don't realize. Like it's this really big thing. So we have education, we have healthcare, we have diverse economic background. That's crazy. That's like a, a great trifecta right there. Let's compound that and start talking about median income. Well, that's about 75,000, which is pretty dang high considering that our cost of living is so darn low, which creates an affordability index where people, their money goes further. And so like people are moving here because their money goes further than it does on the coast and the quality of life is so high. And I know, okay, quality of life is really high. That's a really weird thing to say considering for the last two weeks, we've had zero days above zero degrees. <laughs> and so I, and I know you hear that and you're like, hmm, can't, how good can the quality of life really be? But consistently the Twin Cities is ranked the number one healthiest city in the country because our prevalence of heart disease and like the general fitness of our community is so high. And mm. that's really crazy until you start looking into why that is. We have a lot of access to outdoor activities. We have the number one biking system in the country in terms of like navigating the cities by bike trails. And we have a ton of like just outdoor accessibility within the city. And so like all of these things over and over and over create this atmosphere where there's a strong culture for people to want to be a part of. We have a great food industry, like the food foodie scene. We have a great music scene. And so people want to live here. There's the jobs for it and people are making really good money. And so all of these things lead to this really high demand. And all real estate is, is a basic supply demand equation where there's a lot of, a lot of demand and limited supply, that supply is going to be worth a lot. And that's what we have here is our, our supply, because we have limited inventory, it's worth a lot. And when they just can't build it quickly enough to keep up with all the demand. Now, all of this to, to say, like, why aren't people not aware that Minneapolis Twin Cities is this really awesome place to be investing? It's because we've never had what you would consider explosive growth. When you look at all these other major cities like Nashville or Austin, like these, these places, yeah, Phoenix, they all had like this kind of hockey stick growth at some point where they go boom and they're just like jumping up. If you look at the Twin Cities year over year over year, we're like the little engine that could. We just keep chugging along and we keep hitting the same growth every single year ad infinitum. If you look back on 20, 2007, 2008 during the financial crisis, like we took this a little dip and then we bounced right back up like two, three years later. And it didn't really even feel the effects of, of you know, the world sh closing down. And so like all of this is the same. It creates this sleeper market that a lot of people aren't aware of. And we're totally okay with that because it means <laughs> less competition uh, for us. So go ahead and take this entire section and cut it out. Like, we don't want anybody to know, but like keep this on the DL. Like the Twin Cities is pretty great. The downside is six months out of the year, you know, you got to wear a parka because the weather's going to literally try to kill you. <laughs> I don't even know what a parka is. It's a big, big furry jacket oh, that oh, keeps you big, warm. Okay, got it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I can't relate over here when it's like 60s outside right now. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry to say. Well, <laughs> it's, it's interesting. You know, it's a different world when it's 30 below and like breathing the air is like dangerous. <laughs> but there's something that said, you know, I, I used to live in the Bay Area and we've talked about this. And, and I, I don't know if I've ever told you one of the reasons I moved out of the Bay Area was because the weather is always 68 or 65 degrees and sunny. And anytime it would go like five degrees above or five degrees below, I was suddenly wickedly uncomfortable. Like I became soft. 
I became a softy. I became uh, a weenie. Like if it was like 72 and sunny, I'd be like, oh, so hot. I got to take off all my clothes. And if it was like 60 degrees and sunny or like 60 degrees and cloudy, I was like, it's the end of the world. It's so cold. So I became really soft. I came like acclimated to this very narrow temperature fluctuation. And so I was like, I need to get out of here. I need some seasons. And so I moved back to Minnesota. And I mean, that might've been a mistake, but at least we have <laughs> weather fluctuations. Like it'll be like negative 50 degrees and then all the way up to 110 degrees. So we have like this 160 degree window. So it, it toughens you up on every end of the spectrum. I mean, does it, does it change throughout the day? Cause when I was living in LA in San Francisco, living in LA, like it would be like thirties at night. And then in, in the beginning of the, mm. uh, during the day, it'd be like sixties. 50s or 60s is it the same weather fluctuation during the day as well or is it pretty just consistent that's a good question i've never thought about that you know it's pretty consistent what i would say is that when it's cold it's cold mm. when it's hot it's, it's hot, hot. Mm. and it might fluctuate but it's not fluctuating from like 80 down to 30 and it's not going from negative 10 to 50 degrees like overnight like it's just not doing that and so you'll get like these 40 degree swings but when you're operating on a, a spectrum that's 160 degrees, you're like 40 degrees is nothing. Like if it goes from zero to 40, we're like, eh, whatever. <laughs> Interesting. Well, yeah, I guess it's kind of hard to tell when it's just cold. It's a, it's, it's just cold. cold. Yeah, it's just exactly, cold. Exactly. It's just cold. <laughs> here's the here's the thing when people hear like, oh, it's 50 degrees below zero. They're like, that's insane. It's like, that is insane. But the thing is once it hits zero degrees, it all feels the same. It's just cold. Yeah. And once it gets really hot, it's just it's it's just hot. Really, it's really hot. Yeah. It just doesn't matter what number it is. Exactly. Nah. Awesome. Well, I've learned so much just from this episode. I mean, you've dropped so much knowledge when it comes to networking, when it comes to fear, getting courage, and and also about the Twin Cities. And watch people are going to be flooding your inbox now after this and be like, hey, I want to invest in the Twin Cities. Now, if people want to get in touch with you, where can they reach you? Find us over at InvictusMultifamily.com. We have a bunch of free resources. Right now, The Five Rules of Investing is a ebook that we created where we studied the behaviors of like billionaire real estate investors and distilled what they do down to five rules. So if you're interested, like what are the five rules of billionaire real estate investors, go download that. Otherwise, we have a weekly podcast, Multifamily Investing Made Simple, where we just try to take the complexity out of real estate investing because I think it's this big, scary thing for a lot of people. They feel overwhelmed. They don't know where to start. And it doesn't have to be like that. It doesn't have to be scary. It doesn't have to be overwhelming. We can break it down, make it simple. And so that's that's our objective there. So go check that out. Yeah, and definitely listen to the podcast as well. I still listen to it. And I'm always learning something something new every single time. And, and I just love how simple they make it. They break down these concepts into concept that i can understand we're basic so, people <laughs> not basic very unique i think y'all are unique. very unique. <laughs> Thank you. you're the first first professional rock climber that, that i've met that's also into real estate so I, i'm the first one too i don't know any other honestly it's, like, yeah, it's, 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 a weird, it's a weird niche it's a weird like uh shift <laughs> well Thank you, everyone, for tuning into today's show. Reach out to Anthony. Make sure to tune in next Wednesday where he's coming back for the action items where he just literally tells me what steps that I can take in order to further my journey and also further your journey if you're also starting this industry as well. So tune in next week. Thank you for coming, Anthony, and I will see you next week. Have a great night or day, everyone.
Thanks for listening to the Multifamily Artist Podcast. If you got any value out of this episode, I'd greatly appreciate if you head over to iTunes, leave a rating and review the show, which will help more people receive that same value. If you're looking to connect and talk more about multifamily real estate, you can reach me at inrhythmmultifamily.com. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.